shouldn't we be content to be cosmic sloths, enjoying the universe from the comfort of Earth? The answer is no. Hello there, all you lovers of the odd, the obscure, and the perhaps paranormal. You might remember the dazzling stories of the Summer of Saucers that took place in North America in 1947. But did you know there was a 20-year reunion tour of Alien Craft in 1967? Indeed, once upon a time in Falcon Lake, Manitoba, in May of 67, mechanic and amateur geologist Stefan Mikulak woke up early to begin his hobby of prospecting for quartz and silver. After a morning of working in the bush and a light lunch, Stefan returned to the task at hand, chipping away at a quartz vein he'd found. The cackling of some geese nearby, obviously frightened, startled him. He looked up and saw two glowing objects descending towards him. Stan Mikulak can still vividly remember when his dad came home sick and injured after something happened in the Falcon Lake woods that May long weekend. It was something that put his family life into upheaval and remains one of the world's best-known UFO encounters. Said Mikulak, I recalled seeing him in bed. He didn't look good at all. He looked haggard, pale. The boy was nine years old at the time and was allowed to see his dad for a couple of minutes on the day after what soon became known as the Falcon Lake Incident. Then there was the smell. When I walked into the bedroom, there was a huge stink in the room, like a real horrible aroma of sulfur and burnt motor. It was all around and it was coming out of his pores. It was bad. I was very afraid. My dad had been injured and I didn't know anything about it. Within a couple of days, however, he knew more, and so did the rest of the public. The story about his dad being burned by a UFO ran in the Winnipeg Tribune newspaper, and he says that's when everything pretty much hit the fan. Stefan Mikulak was an industrial mechanic by trade and an amateur geologist who liked to venture into the wilderness around Falcon Lake, about 150 kilometers east of Winnipeg, to prospect. He had staked some claims the prior year and set out on the May long weekend in 67 to explore some more. On May 20th, Stefan was near a vein of quartz along the Precambrian Shield in the area when the 51-year-old was startled by a gaggle of geese that erupted into a clattering of honks. When he looked up, he saw two cigar-shaped objects with a reddish glow hovering about 45 meters away. One descended, according to his account, landing on a flat section of rock and taking on more of a disc shape. The other remained in the air for a few minutes before flying away. Believing it to be a secret U.S. military experimental craft, 
Stefan sat back and sketched it over the next half hour. Then he decided to approach, later recalling the warm air and smell of sulfur as he got closer, as well as a whirring sound of motors and a hissing of air. He also noted a door open on the side with bright lights inside, and he said he heard voices muffled by the sounds from the craft. He says he called out, offering mechanical help to the Yankees if they needed it. The voices went quiet, but didn't answer. So Stefan tried in his native Polish, then in Russian and finally in German. Only the whir and hiss of the craft responded. He claims he went closer and noted the smooth metal of the ship with no seams. He then looked into the bright doorway, pulling on the welding goggles he used to protect his eyes while chipping at rocks during prospecting. Inside, Stefan says he saw light beams and panels of various colored flashing lights, but could not see anyone or any living thing. When he stepped away, three panels slid across the door opening and sealed it. He reached out to touch the craft, which he said melted the fingertips of the glove he was wearing. The craft then began to turn counterclockwise, and Stefan says he noticed a panel that contained a grid of holes. Shortly afterward, he was struck in the chest by a blast of air or gas that pushed him backwards and set his shirt and cap ablaze. He ripped away the burning garments as the craft lifted off and flew away. Disorientated and nauseous, Stefan stumbled through the forest and vomited. He eventually made his way back to his motel room in Falcon Lake, then caught a bus back to Winnipeg. He was treated at a hospital for burns to his chest and stomach that later turned into raised sores on a grid-like pattern. And for weeks afterward, he suffered from diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and weight loss. It just flipped our lives over, he said. It took several years before it finally died down. After that, and until the day he died in 1999 at the age of 83, Stefan believed he never should have said a thing. At the time, he felt it was his duty to speak. He wanted others, if they were to see the same thing, to avoid it and not get hurt. Back in Poland, before Stefan moved his family to Canada, he was a military policeman with a set of moral guidelines that he lived by. That is, if something happened, it should be reported. In addition to constant probing from authorities, the family endured condemnation and criticism in the public. Stefan's sanity was questioned and Mikulak was bullied in school. Though he wished he hadn't said anything, Stefan never backed away from his story either. He also never claimed to have seen aliens and still considered it a secret military craft. If you asked him what it was he saw, he could describe it in intimate detail, but he would never say, it was extraterrestrials, because there was no evidence to prove that, says his son. He might ask, what do you think I saw? But right up until he died, his story never changed. 
In all those years since, and with some 300 pages of documentation on the encounter, there's nothing so far that has flawed this story. So, what does Mikalak's son think? He says, I'm not so closed-minded that I can't entertain the possibility that it's otherworldly. I can't discount that. But without specific evidence to show me that it is, I don't know. What I can tell you is that I'm an aviation fanatic, and I'm very familiar with how aviation technology has advanced in the past 50 years, and there was nothing even close to that in the works anywhere at that time. Items were later retrieved from the encounter site, including Stefan's glove and shirt and some tools, which were subjected to extensive analysis at an RCMP crime lab. No one could determine what had caused the burns. At the landing site was a circle about 15 feet in diameter, devoid of the moss and vegetation growing in other areas of the same rock outcropping. Soil samples, along with samples of clothing, were tested and deemed to be highly radioactive. So were the pieces of metal that were chipped out of cracks in the rock about a year after the incident. The metal had somehow seemed to be melted into the cracks. Many of the items have long since been lost as they were transferred through various authorities and agencies. However, Mikalak still has one of the pieces of metal, which remains radioactive. Still sick in 1968 with recurrences of the burns showing up on his chest, and suffering from blackouts, Stefan went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Doctors did a thorough investigation and even sent him to a psychiatrist, who came back with the report that, This is a fellow who's very pragmatic, down-to-earth, pardon the pun, and does not make up stories. Says his son, If Dad hoaxed this, remember, we're talking about a blue-collar industrial mechanic, then he was a freaking genius. The Falcon Lake incident was not the only UFO activity reported in Canada that year. In October of 1967, something else odd happened in the small fishing village of Shag Harbor, located at the southern tip of Nova Scotia. Named after the Shag, which is a bird of the Cormorant family, Shag Harbor was not easy to find on most maps. The tiny fishing community has always had its stories of giant sea serpents, man-eating squid, and ghost ships. But this time, there were orange lights in the sky. The first indication of this mysterious occurrence would come from local residents who noticed strange orange lights in the sky on the night of October 4th. Most witnesses agreed that there were four orange lights that evening. Five teenagers watched these lights flash in sequence and then suddenly dive at a 45-degree angle towards the water's surface. The witnesses were surprised that the lights did not dive into the water, but seemed to float on the water, approximately one-half mile from the shore. Witnesses at first thought they were watching a tragic airplane crash, and quickly reported as much to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which was located at Barrington Passage. 
Coincidentally, RCMP Constable Ron Pound had already witnessed the strange lights himself as he drove down Highway 3 en route to Shag Harbor. Pound felt that he was seeing four lights, all attached to one craft, and he estimated that craft to be about 60 feet long. Constable Pound made his way to the shore to get a closer look at the phenomenal sight, accompanied by Police Corporal Victor Werbecki, Constable Ron O'Brien, and some other local residents. Pound clearly saw a yellow light slowly moving on the water, leaving a yellowish foam in its wake. All eyes were glued on the light as it slowly either moved too distant to be seen or dipped into the icy waters. Coast Guard Cutter Number 101 and other local boats rushed to the spot of the sighting, but by the time they arrived, the light itself was gone. However, the crewmen could still see the yellow foam, indicating that something had possibly submerged. Nothing else could be found that night, and the search was called off at 3 a.m. The RCMP ran a traffic check with the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax and NORAD radar at Bakaro in Nova Scotia. They were told that there were no missing aircraft reported that evening, either civilian or military. The following day, the Rescue Coordination Centre filed a report with the Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. This report stated that something had hit the water in Shag Harbour, but the object was of unknown origin. The HMCS Granby was ordered to the location, where divers searched the bottom of the ocean for several days, but with no results. Soon the story of the mysterious crash died as quickly as it had begun, until 1993. As the original story faded from papers and newscasts, several theories were put forward. One explanation was that a Russian spacecraft had crashed which would explain the presence of a Russian submarine in the area. There was also the rumor of American involvement in the follow-up investigation, but again, there was no official statement from the United States. That's when MUFON investigator Chris Stiles breathed new life into the incident. The case intrigued him so much that he decided to search himself for more details. Stiles found the names of many of the original witnesses through newspaper clippings and was able to interview many of them. Assisted by MUFON investigator Doug Ledger, Stiles uncovered some interesting evidence. He discovered when the divers of the Granby finished their work, the case was not over after all. The divers, along with other witnesses, related the following events. The object that dove into the waters of the harbor had soon left the Shag area, traveling underwater for about 25 miles to a place called Government Point, which was near a submarine detection base. The object was spotted there on sonar, and naval vessels were positioned over it. After a few days, the military was planning a salvage operation when a second UFO joined the first. The common belief at the time was that the second craft had arrived to render aid to the first. At this time, the Navy decided to wait and watch. After about a week of monitoring the two UFOs, 
Some of the vessels were called to investigate a Russian submarine that had entered Canadian waters. At this point, the two underwater craft made their move. They made their way to the Gulf of Maine, and putting distance between themselves and the chasing Navy boats, they broke the surface and shot away into the sky. These extraordinary events were corroborated by many witnesses, both civilian and military. Unfortunately, the reports were given off the record. Ex-military personnel feared the loss of their pensions, and civilian witnesses feared ridicule. Nothing else is known about the crash at Shag Harbor. Good night.